Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. All About Women partnered with Western Sydney-based literacy movement Sweatshop on an emerging writer's mentorship program for women and non-binary First Nations, culturally and linguistically diverse writers. Mentorship recipients Yena Kirkbright and Aisha Ash read their finished works inspired by the All About Women festival themes of allyship, friendship and collective responsibility in a dialogue with mentors Winnie Dunn and Randa Abdul-Fattah. If you had asked us before reading the applications, why do we need such a program? We might have said to redress the cliques and and exclusivity among mainstream white feminism, to offer insurgent counter stories which powerfully speak back to structures and spaces which fetishize and exoticize people of color. We might have said to nourish emerging voices who experience multiple and cross-cutting axes of identities and provide them with support. And all of this is true. But after reading the applications, another reason became apparent. Women of colour constantly encounter life through a lenticular lens, viewed from one angle, joy, love, friendship, community, laughter. Viewed from the slightest tilt of an angle, trauma, oppression, injustice, racism, colonialism. During fieldwork in Palestine, Arab-Australian anthropologist Professor Hassan Hajj wrote about the widow of a recently killed Palestinian man. Hajj watched her put her young children to bed. She insisted on making bedtime routine ordinary, mundane, reading apolitical books, engaging in a ritual with no reference to the children's recently killed father. Hajj repeatedly saw this play out, the violence of life under occupation existing alongside the mundane, every routines of life. And he concluded that cultivating a space or a dimension of life that is free from both occupation and the resistance to occupation is to cultivate a space of heroic normality. Whilst resistance is important, he said, it is an exhausting mode of resistance, of existence. A dominated people cannot simply survive by resisting, he said. So welcome to In Colour, a dialogue with rising artists. The overwhelming majority of applications that we, myself and Rhonda, received were by women and non-binary writers of colour who submitted to the program. They reminded us that writers are constantly cultivating spaces of heroic normality, despite the inequalities, traumas and violence they have survived, witnessed and still endure. These writers who are here on stage, have an astonishing creative, intellectual and emotional capacity to insist on still creating, imagining, connecting, bearing witness. They understand the power and privilege of the majority gaze, the violence that is endemic to every structure in this nation, but exhibit the courage, humour and self-love to refuse that gaze, to write for themselves, for each other, and for their communities. We would like to take this moment to therefore congratulate every single woman and person who entered into the mentorship. We were blown away by the strength, hope and courage within all 57 applications. And we know some of you are here in the crowd tonight, today and speaking directly to you all, we'd like to encourage each and every one of you to keep learning, writing and telling your own magnificent stories. Of course, for this particular mentorship, we could only pick four winners, 
whilst it was an incredibly difficult decision, we trust everyone is able to see why we chose the following women. Yina, who's next to me, who reminds us all that sovereignty, country and black matriarchy are not just pretty words. Aisha, the lovely green, who encourages us to be critical of the forms of sisterhood that leaves us bruised. Lena Ali, uh, who's in the crowd today, who tells us that community is not limited to our immediate surroundings, but should be extended to those we see suffering overseas. And Rakia Ahmed, who found her ancestors in an aisle of the local Woolies. You can read their stories on the Sydney Opera House website. Um, if Lena and Rakia are here, if you want to stand up, I know you can't join us on stage. Mm. Um, Uh, Lena and Rakia have beautiful stories that you can read on the Sydney Opera House website. Um, yep. So I'd like to introduce Yena now. Yena is a Wiradjuri poet who grew up in central um, West New South Wales. She is now blessed to live and work on Darug and Gadigal lands here in Sydney. Her work has appeared in several literary journals, including Cordite Poetry Review, Overland, and most recently in Australian Poetry's Best of Australian Poems 2021. Her poem, The Grief Tourist, was awarded runner-up in Overland Literary Journal's 2021 Karaka Prize for Australian Literature. So I'd like to welcome Yina to the stage <laughs> to read her. The Tea and Sugar Train. Remember we could see the river from the kitchen sink, but in says now through pregnancy, tracks and country through mulga and saltbush sparseness, lashes these quartz veins passing through red desert, lashes of hot metal memory, tethers binding up land, and somewhere at the end is her endless country. Remember the matin song of dawn kookaburras who smelt day at the pit of night, prophesying the warmth would be birthing. Remember the noontide Castilimon lanterns, hip-swaying sirens, sunlit, breeze swinging, then beak dropped. Remember the scent of warming nectar wafting, the vespers of welcome swallows at twilight, telling the cockatoos move off. Or the hoop, hoop, hoop of the wonga trekking from feast to nest, the click and clack of the evening train, the rhythm of life passing in a river, in child's play splash, the hum of bees pollinating a wood-fired water heater. Remember the hush as a pipe smoked from evening, when tethers were kin, not railway sleepers. But inn's boys watch as tears make quinacridome of dust, inking out a rusted, ball-bearing grief that scrapes and whinnies through dry ancient dust blight and grease across a thousand millennia where tea and sugar bring home memories fading. Ethel Mary Riley. <clears throat> Granny tells me black cockatoos predict the weather. They fly in front of rain clouds. Granny moves the hogs out to pasture. We have to hide in the chicken coop. Granny tells me my name is old, from a time before white fellas. Granny tells auntie she thinks we are real black fellas, running bare feet with her chickens. Granny has a white cockatoo in a cage. She says she never wanted to be trapped. Granny tells me she doesn't know what happened to black fellas before Jesus. Granny is crying in the kitchen. She says she remembers what was lost. Granny doesn't have anything in the fridge, but what she has in the freezer, she gives. 
Granny says, I shouldn't pat Lady the cat. I pat Lady, she scratches me, I hate her. Granny says, I shouldn't hate, that love is the only valuable thing. Granny gives her love to her son, later that son gives that love to me. Womb and Loom. My grandmothers are sun heat held fast in a tombstone at the end of day. The monad on which I lean my back and wonder what will grow there, where flesh meets stone. A labyrinth of lantana, old man's weed, Patterson's curse, rose gardens. Grey myrtle, hakia, acacia, eucalypt. A fetish for gum flowers and river she-oak is one grandmother's weft of wild flax, stretched taut from scapula to iliac crest, holding fast another wafts, another's waft, running left to right from pubic bone to breast. Cup, 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 my granny is water rhythm, river, tap, tap, tap on rock, telling the day her children are precious and woven of hardier stuff. Picker of gum stump charcoal, leather skin of softest paper bark, gift baskets of cycloid scales, sunset flying, the front step miracle, cleaning today's catch for tonight's dinner. The last poem I'm going to read is Sister, <clears throat> and this is for my sister, Alinta. <coughs> when I am with you, I am auntie, where I am mob and ageless, where stories and trauma and grief and laughter are one in the same, where brothers are remembered and sisters are held, we laugh. I eat your stories till I am full and nourished, where our histories bump into each other. We laugh about your cousin who has a white Maltese called Fluffy, but she calls him White Dog. <laughs> we laugh. It is medicine being in the car with you feels like ice creams by the beach on summer holidays with our menagerie, feet up on the dash watching country pass, making fun of, ki of the kids' serious protest. We laugh. You teach a lesson to all of us, to me and the kids, to be good, to be kind, to live our truth, to laugh, and to love while you can. You adjust your hijab. Tell me it's your Muslim hands free. We laugh. Aisha is a proud Maori Gren Grenadian interdisciplinary artist who seeks to spark social consciousness through her work. In 2015, she co-founded the highly acclaimed creative arts company Blackbirds, of which she is now the artistic director. Blackbirds was created as a response to the lack of representation and misrepresentation of women of colour in Australian arts. With each project, creatives collaborate on works that dissect and document black and brown diasporic experiences in Australia. Blackbirds is currently creating Scene, a television show inspired by their sold-out stage play, Brown Skin Gill. Can we welcome Aisha? Like the gap between Penny's front teeth, there was always a space between the sisters. It was hard to miss. Penny and Ginny by themselves were standouts. Wahine Atahua, who stole the eyes of whoever they were with. Ginny's skin glowed in the colour of honey. The old one said she must carry the story of the bee in her blood, but her mother said it was simply an appreciation for the sun. 
Ginny walked through the world in a body that was built for running. Her legs could carry her beyond the horizon, but she didn't care for covering distance. Her preference was to saunter, swinging her hips to an island beat that only she could hear. As Ginny aged, her hair turned from gold to bronze, matching the flecks in her eyes. The bronze gave her a complex. Still, Ginny lived her life in a constant dialogue with the ancestors, always questioning why they chose to cast her in the colour of a loser. Penny was lighter in tone and spirit. As a baby, her eyes were so big that Auntie Kuia started to take her to bingo and charge folk $5 to look into them, promising a vision for the future. After their father found out, the family didn't speak to Auntie Kuia for a year. By her 12th birthday, Penny's hair was so long and thick, she convinced herself that she was Rapunzel. In the evening, she'd sit on the windowsill of their inner city terrace, hair hanging over Jasmine, waiting for Prince Charming to arrive. After a year of nothing but Mr. Whippy Vans and last to leaves from the local pub, she gave up waiting and found a love of soft serve ice cream. It was all she ate breakfast, lunch, dinner. Ginny was secretly thrilled at the thought of her sister transforming into a dumpling, but the opposite happened. Penny got thinner and thinner, her hair longer and longer, her eyes big as the moon. The boys would yell, Hey, Snow White, want to climb up my beanstalk? And Penny would yell back, They're two different stories, you gronks, with a strength well beyond her body. As childhood turned into the age of teens, Penny and Ginny would pass each other in the hall, step out of the door almost in sync, then walk to the same school separately. Weekends were spent joyfully apart, Penny holding the hand of some boy who just learnt how to drive, and Ginny covering herself with coconut oil on Bondi Beach. That was until their mother's nervous breakdown, only mentioned in public as a bad migraine that won't seem to go away, and no, it doesn't run in the family, after which their father desperately proclaimed that Saturdays were now for the Fano, and neglect of this unwelcome tradition would result in a loss of privileges, including their weekly allowance and Thursday night's Chinese takeaway. Money was neither here nor there for the sisters. Penny's boyfriend would buy her whatever she needed. Ginny had recently taken up stealing as an after-school sport. It gave her a thrill, and Ginny thought that petty crime would make a nice addition to her autobiography someday. <laughs> it was the possible loss of the Chinese takeaway that really had the sisters pressed. Eating the Billy Key chicken made by Mrs. Lee was a religious experience. A piece of Billy Key scooped in dark brown chopsticks, a bite, a moment of gratitude, a mouthful of rice, and then the ritual would begin again. There was a time when the smell of Mrs. Lee's cooking was overshadowed by bad plumbing in the street, driving customers to the competitors two blocks over. That was until the sister's father did a karakia and paid a plumber to fix the issue. The Lees expressed their thanks with the restaurant's highest honour, a permanently reserved table for the Fano. Here, at this table, the sisters were at peace, connecting through the cultural cornerstone of food, albeit someone else's. For six years of Saturdays, the tradition pushed the sisters together. Some Saturdays, like stepping on a bindi, a quick rush of pain forgotten in an instant. 
Others were like getting punched in the face at 12 p.m. on on a Saturday in Pitt Street Mall and having the cops laugh at you once they found out you were sisters and having your mother cry inconsolably and having your father tell you that if your mother goes back to the resort, you'll be keeping a shaved head until your 30th and 33rd birthdays. (laughs) When Jenny raised her fists, it carried the weight of jealousy a heaviness wrapped around years of skin envy, of longing for a body that would never be hers. It hit Penny's cheek with a crack, breaking the fraying rope of sisterly connection and flinging them into the reality of their disconnect. Penny didn't cry. She didn't know how. Instead, she grabbed Ginny's bronzed hair with such force that Ginny expelled a sound so primitive it woke the spirits of her great, great, great grandmothers. Frail from years spent on the cusp of sickness, all their mother could do was sway her body from side to side. Their father saw the scene unfolding in slow motion. He saw his brothers in his daughters, ancient memories of violence he had failed to forget. Breaking them apart was like separating a mother from her newborn child. When the sisters finally stopped to breathe, their father's proclamation of the shaving of their heads as punishment for going against their nature was proclaimed throughout the whole city. So good every single time I hear it. Um, So a bit of housekeeping before we start the um, dialogue part of this event. Um, There is a website called slido.com in which everybody here in the audience and people on the live stream can sign into and use the hashtag in colour and you can ask any and all questions that you wish um, to be read out at Q&A. You're also more than welcome to upvote certain questions that you see so they get popular and then they'll get answered. Of course, if there's any racist ones, won't go through. <laughs> so don't even try. But, you know, sometimes that's funny. Um, anyway, so we're going to go to the questions uh, part of this panel. Um, and I think Rhonda has our starting question. Yeah. Um, so I know also that as writers of colour, we're often assumed to write simply to speak back or to resist or as... Um, an act of resistance, as an, an act of, as an activist act, you know. And there's this beautiful quote I love by um, Toni Morrison, art invites us to know beauty and to solicit it from even the most tragic of circumstances. And that got me reflecting about how your stories and indeed a lot of the applications, it wasn't just about speaking back, it was very much a place of writing from self-determination, from having a story to tell, of not just being there to... Um, speak back to a white narrative and what I want to ask is what what motivates you to write in terms of the craft in terms of you know your the most primal instinct about putting paper to pen what is it that brings you to your writing I think yeah creativity and expression you know I think as a a kid I was super super shy so um, writing and performing were the two things that could that I could kind of explore who I was and share who I was without feeling um, like I wanted to vomit. (laughs) So, you know, I think it was definitely that part and, you know, our culture's such great orators and and speakers and, you know, to be able to write something that is for people who can speak it as well and hear that voice and feel that power is amazing. Yeah. Mm. 
Um, yeah, I think for me, um, about two years ago, I read um, Firefront, which is a collection of, um, of Blackfella poetry. And I realised that, you know, my perspective and my stories and the stories of my family, they have a place in the canon of literature of this country. Mm. And, um, and so, yeah, I felt like I wanted to... I've written poetry my whole life and I felt like I wanted to send some of it out into the public domain. Um, but, yeah, writing for me is a place where I'm very honest. I'm probably more honest in my writing than I am in my real life, which is strange, but, um, yeah. You were telling us earlier, sorry, Winnie, um, no? that you're one of 11. Did you, as a kid, like, retreat to writing? To um, Yeah, definitely. I'm, like, there is a lot of big characters in my brother and sister cohort, um, and I'm probably one of the quieter ones, so... Um, yeah, I think, like, writing was definitely a space where... And particularly poetry. Um, I I think I was undiagnosed dyslexic. Like, I couldn't... I didn't read. Um, but I loved poetry because the lines were short and there was often rhyming and it felt more accessible. And I think for a way for me to express those things, yeah, poetry was always my first love, I guess. Yina's actually the first person I've met who has more brothers and sisters. <laughs> She's got 11. So at this point, there's, I think Yina's taking the cake. Um, so what people may not know about this whole process is that myself and Rhonda worked with both of you behind the scenes as winners of this mentorship um, to work on the pieces you just read. But even before that process, when you applied, you had to kind of bring forward an idea about how you were going to uh, relate to the themes of the festival and the stories that you wanted to curate with myself and Rhonda as part of this mentorship. So um, maybe starting with you, um, Aisha, what was the inspiration behind your piece and your application? Yeah, a couple of different things. Um, I spent a lot of time last year thinking about letting go of things and relationships that weren't working, um, personal, professional, and got me to thinking about, you know, in families, especially ethnic families, there's so much pressure put on sisters to, to maintain this kind of relationship and on siblings, I guess, but definitely on sisters to remain a to remain really close and to perform all these duties, even if they hate each other. Um, and sometimes it's just so much better to be able to say to someone or know in yourself, like, great, we don't get along, that's fine, we don't have to force this. Um, so it was inspired partly by that and then also, you know, partly by my mum and um, my auntie Dallas, but I mean, loosely, loosely. Um, <laughs> there may have been an incident in Pittstream all in the 80s, but, you know. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, because, you know, they're sisters, they're three years apart, but they've never been, like, best friends. And I think that something when I was growing up, I always wanted a sister. And I said, now I have a best friend all the time, Mum. And Mum was like, well, not necessarily. And I just remember her constantly saying that. So I think, you know, trying to undo these expectations of of what a family is and what relationships look like um, and being okay with being separate. Mm -hmm. And Yina, what about you? What was the inspiration behind your application and, and, and your poem? Um, yeah, I think, like, just the women in my family. Obviously, this is a um, festival about women, so I just wanted to do something that honoured them. Um, you know, not my, my Aboriginal grandmother, but also, you know, my mother and, um, and my sisters, so... Yeah, that's what I 
I wanted to put into my poetry for this. Beautiful. And so my next question, I know it's going to have to be a bit biased because me and Rhonda are both here, so you can't say <laughs> too much. But um, based on the mentorship process that you received uh, from us, what advice do you have for other emerging writers in the crowd who kind of want to start and how and advice on maybe how they approach mentoring and their first kind of steps in creative writing? Mm. Yina? <laughs> um, well, for this, I did something a bit cheeky because you asked me for four poems and actually I was I wanted to know what poems you would cut out. Mm. So I sent you seven. <laughs> <laughs> but I think like from that, like that stuff, even the rejections that you get are really helpful. Like I've, I submitted a poem um, twice that got rejected and then I took it home, I rewrote it, I pulled it apart and submitted it and it, it won an award. So I think like... I would say that, yeah, even the rejections and the corrections are really, really important and, um, yeah. Absolutely, 100%. Um, Aisha? Yeah, I think um, just really leaning into receiving feedback is so helpful and having that outside eye because, you know, working as an actor in, like, a creative theatre, often I'm in the production and directing the production and it's like you need someone else to tell you what's going on. So it's so nice to have people that you really trust and admire looking at your work and providing feedback that is useful and, yeah, being able to, to grow with the work. It's good. Well, you did it very magnanimously because not everybody can take feedback. It's hard. Oh, it's oh I love feedback. Yeah. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think that has to be the spirit of every writer, every, every writer starting off on their journey needs to be open to feedback and needs to be open to criticism because that's how you grow. And with my work at Sweatshop, I find a lot of writers, they come into the space and they're writing quite personal stories, being a woman of colour, mm. things about their grandmother, stuff mm. uh, Yina was touching on, things about sisters that Aisha was touching on. But sometimes when you give a particular person a form of criticism on their writing, they take it as a personal attack on their grandmother. And, <laughs> and often with a lot of emerging writers, I'm just saying, you know, there's your own personal story, which is great. But then there's also the craft of writing. And you have to take seriously the craft of writing if you're wanting to start that journey of becoming a writer, which is years long. And so, um, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but I'm assuming that what me and Rhonda found really unique and awesome about the two of you is that you really knew how to separate the personal from the craft. You really knew that my personal story needs to be in there. It's important. It creates an original contribution to knowledge, but I'm also here to learn about the craft of writing and what it means. So it was really awesome. Mm -hmm. I found that I found the mentorship. I learn a lot from it as, as much as I hope that you guys learn. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, um, there was some bits in there where you said this is the, these are cliches and I think like when you've read something a thousand times mm. you don't see that like mm. so it was really helpful to have um yeah just a second pair of eyes to say these are the bits that should be tweaked beautiful it's so vulnerable like being a writer you, yeah I'll give you your hundred dollars later <laughs> <laughs> you're like so invested in your work and then you produce it and you and it's no longer yours and it's very hard to let go Mm. But, you know, your words, you've put all this effort into it and then you let go to the world and everyone's going to interpret it in different ways. So, 
Yeah, it was amazing to work with you both. <laughs> um, so I don't know how many people know here that actually this mentorship had a theme. The theme was allyship, friendship and community. Um, so can you speak to us a little bit about what that meant for you in, in the way you approached your work? Yeah, I think they're all you know, allyship, friendship and community, the three things that are constantly changing mm. um, and they, sh they should be constantly changing in your idea of them and, and how you're in relation with each of them, um, where you place yourself within each of them. So I think, you know, community definitely changes and there can be sometimes, you know, terrible violence, lateral violence within a community. Um, I think that's a really important conversation to be having. Um, and, you know, trying to find out how you can support someone and being a friend. Uh, this is also me, me last year being alone in COVID for many months, thinking about it, my life yeah. and um, <laughs> thinking about, you know, really having great friends in your life is so important and people drop out of your life for a reason and that's okay. And I think that was really, you know, part of my whole story, mm. letting people go, finding your real friends, et cetera, et cetera. What about you, Yuna? Um, I was at... I went to Yarbin this year, um, which is a big festival um, for black followers at the end of Invasion Day March. And I was sitting out the front with my sister on a blanket and these young guys started setting up this table and on it they had this sign that said, we won't feel... We refuse to feel guilt about what happened to Aboriginal people oh, in this country. Jesus. And they had a, a camera and they, invi they were inviting people to come over and have an argument with them. Oh, my God. And um, my sister, like, I could see her just getting up and I was like, no, oh. Linda, come back. She's a woman that never um, backs down from a fight. But I thought, imagine if Granny was there and she was telling mm. them her story. Like, imagine if Dad told his story about, you know, being marginalised, having to fight every day for everything that these young guys, I'm going to assume they're privileged, they were white, um, you know, get given on a platter. And I thought, like, you can't not have compassion and empathy when you sit down and you learn someone's story. And so I think for this, like, I really wanted to tell Granny's story. I really wanted to share her story so that people could learn mm -hmm. um, why it's really important that we answer these questions of um, Aboriginal sovereignty, why we why it's important that we decolonise as a nation, you know. Mm. So, um, yeah, going back to the question, I think um, lots of us, lots of people in the audience today are people of colour and, you know, you have a story. That story is really important to Australia. So, um, yeah. Mm. Thank you. So what's next for you both? Um... <laughs> I'll be writing some, I'm writing a lot this year, which is great. And uh, I've got a show coming up with Blackbirds in April, which is great. Tickets aren't on sale yet, though. But, um, yeah, and just bopping around town. <laughs> <laughs> um, Writing-wise, I would love to have my own collection. Um, so I need some time to write. So that will probably require taking some time off work. Um, but yeah, and this um, mentorship has been invaluable for that, mm. you know, like just being able to have someone look at my work. I haven't had that before. So, yeah. Wonderful. Beautiful. Okay. So the slider seems to be working. So um, 
an audience member had a question that I probably want to start off with in the spirit of kind of all about women. Um, as a woman, I face a lot of misogyny and limitations. How do you get over them or bear them, especially as women of colour? Make art about them. Make art? Yeah. <laughs> yeah what do you mean by that? Um, I don't know. I guess like write... Well, what I do is I've written my frustrations and I feel like in my poetry that's a really good place to put, um, yeah, truths that you see. Mm. And Aisha, what about you? Um, I think if you can remove yourself from misogynistic people, it's great. And if you can't, I just say, you know, pick your battles because as angry as I get, it's exhausting. And so sometimes I just want to say get lost and I just can go on with my day and sorry to this man. So it's just terrible. I don't know. It's yeah. And yeah. Rhonda, I think I want to extend the question to you because I feel like, you know, I often refer to you as my queen, which you <laughs> definitely are. <laughs> and I feel like in the history of feminism, you know, sometimes it just takes growing up and time to really understand the complexities of kind of misogyny and how you approach it as a woman of colour. So what is your advice? Like you said, you pick your battles. Mm -hmm. um, for me, my advice is I won't invest in educating somebody when I know there's no point. Mm -hmm. um, I, I invest in the next generation, not because I am sort of, I don't want to place that burden on them and assume, like, in this idealistic space that youth are the answer to the future, but more because I feel that there is such a gap in the education system, there isn't enough people who are activists in the education system undoing um, curriculum, which reinforces this day in, day night, no matter how many anti-racist, decolonial words, that intersectional words they throw into it, um, at the heart of the system, it's still there, that rot and those structures. So I have learnt now to invest my energy where I think it's going to make a difference. And that's, you know, with young people, through my writing and conversations and the hardest circles to challenge sort of structural power and the hardest circles are the intimate circles of people you know. Those are the hardest people to have a fight with around the dinner table. Um, but they're the ones who make that difference. Like I, on during the holidays, um, we had ni there's 19 grandchildren on my um, husband's side and they're you know, a beautiful bunch of kids. I've got four of, four of them on my kids. And I heard them listening to some rap music and then one of them um, said the N-word. So I waited, you know, waited, waited. And then um, I thought, what am I going to do about this? You know, they're family, they're young. Um, is anyone going to pull them up on it? No one did. And so I, we've got a, a, a WhatsApp group chat. And so I basically just um, schooled the parents, you know, my, you know, my family, but in a respectful way. But I said, this, we have to put a stop to this now because mm -hmm. they actually don't know what they're doing. They're 12, 13. And if we don't put a stop to it, it's going to continue. Mm. So that's where I invest my energy, not in white men in power because it's too late. <laughs> so we need, we need to invest in the generation who are going to, you know, throw them out. So that means mass mobilisation. From Woo. Every time Rhonda speaks, I learn from her. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Grace. Um, on the white men and it being hopeless, uh, one question, I got two upvotes. Why is it important that women of colour have women of colour as their mentors? How might this experience be different to having men or white people as mentors? 
I think there's just this different understanding. There's a, there's a, we have very different paths to tread than white people or men and there's... <laughs> what? <laughs> Sorry. White people can't even, can't even mention them without wanting and, to gag a little uh, bit. I just feel like, you know, it's very also, I feel very safe, you know, having been able to share stories with someone who may not have had exactly the same experiences as you but can relate on some level, has been through some of the same situations is invaluable. Um, and I also think, like, let's let's give more mentorship roles to women of colour who are doing it. Let's provide that kind of system so that people can keep growing and, and keep moving on and... Um, I just it just makes sense. Yeah. You know what about? Um, yeah, there was like a really nice part um, after I shared the poems with you, Rhonda, and you were you shared a bit about um, going over to Palestine and doing some work over there, and um, we were talking about this kind of like familiarity in um, humorous resistance, mm -hmm. like and and in trauma, you know, people still being able to find. Um, humour and generosity and so yeah it was nice to be um, to have someone even though we come from very different backgrounds to s have a similarity and and um, yeah I felt really safe writing my work and sending it to you because mm. you both knew what I was trying to do and I think that's why it's really important that yeah there are more mm. women of colour doing mentorships. I think the, yeah um, Winnie there's a difference between because all my life I've had many white um, editors, yes. and, and that's the difference, I think. There's a difference between an editor who is, can be amazing, bring the best out of your craft, and a mentor. And the, the mentorship is different because we're writing from a different space and a different purpose, and that's the safe space that only comes through understanding from writing from the margins. So it doesn't matter how well-intentioned, how much good faith... Um, you know, a white editor is investing into the relationship and it can be an amazing relationship. But, you know, my, my editors are very good friends, but I will never get the mentorship that I will and that I crave from a woman of colour. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. Um, so speaking of women of colour, you know, I love the fact that Yina and Aisha, both of you are First Nations women and black women and the inspiration and stories that come from that. And so I, I wanted to say that specifically because we had an audience question that asks, as an artist, I understand that finding inspiration is hard, but even harder for writers. How do you find your inspiration or get over an art block? And then my extension of that question is, do you lean upon your own uh, culture mm. for inspiration? Yeah, totally. I do all the time. I think culture and family, like things that are super important to me, things that I'm constantly in relationship and constantly learning about and actively making choices to engage with. Like I always want to explore that um, in my writing and in my performance. So yeah, that's something that comes, if I ever feel like I'm at a block, I always go back to reading a book about my family or like looking at old photos and just kind of exploring the stories and also there's so much history that's been lost so imagining the stories um imagining what happened imagining who the who they were and what their lives were like and so yeah I think that's um that's my foundation 
Yeah, I probably the same. Like I, I love picking up the phone and talking to my dad, <clears throat> who's mad. Um, but he is really like has so many great stories and a lot of really important cultural knowledge and um, and so yeah, I, I find a lot of inspiration in him. I also love going out and being on this beautiful country anywhere. If it's not my country, someone else's country, I find a lot of inspiration from that. Um, so yeah. Mm. And Randa, you know, I, ke I keep coming back to you because I feel like we can all learn so much from you. I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're like an author of like 12 <laughs> books or something. And your recent book, Growing Up in the Age of War and Terror, has been long listed for the Stella. Amazing, by the way. Um, and so where do you get the inspiration or where have you got inspiration in the past to, to write all these fantastic books? From family, mainly. My, um, we were speaking about look, grandmothers have been a huge part of my life. Um, I've just been curious always about hearing the stories of, of you know, people that we don't often hear from. Um, and just, um, it's a, just that creative space for me, the craft is what interests me more than anything else. Um, like, I learned so much from this mentorship. I learned from you, Winnie, the way that you mentored and the, the way that you picked apart craft. Um, for me, that really excites me. It, that's what excites me more than the messaging. Like, I just love pulling apart words. I love the games you can play with words. And I think that when you're inspired by the actual practice, that's when the best writing comes out, more so than just being inspired by the messaging or the purpose behind your writing. It can give you purpose, but if you really lose yourself to the craft as a creator, as an, act, as an artist, I think that's the most inspiring and it's self-motivating as well. Beautiful. Okay, so probably the second last question I'm going to ask. So if anybody has some burning question that they may be too shy to ask, do jump on the Slido hashtag in colour and do ask us a question before we wrap up. Um, Anonymous asks, I work as a high school youth worker with 80% of the students identifying as culturally and linguistically diverse. Do you have any tips and tricks to empower and encourage young people of colour and women of colour? In what? In Just young. Encourage? Yeah, like... The, I guess the question is like, when, try to think of when you were young and you were in high school, what do you feel like you needed to help inspire and empower you to, to come to your own voice and your yeah, own story? Totally. Books and stories and art by other women of colour. That's when I needed. I spent so much of my life not knowing who I was, where I was supposed to be because there was no one who looked like me. I couldn't find any books by people like who had stories like mine and I had to search and search and search for so long. And if that was just there, if someone had given it to me, it would have made my life a heap easier. So, um, and just being patient, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of shame and there's people don't want to take risks, especially when you're a teenager, it's a terrible time. So um, I think, you know, just be patient and create safe spaces and get women of colour mentors in or people of colour mentors in to help, help the kids. Yeah. Mm. Nina, what about you? Um, yeah, I guess I was going to say, like, just encouraging them to share their story. I think, like, everyone's got a point of view and it's... Um, yeah, can, you can feel like, oh, maybe my point of view is not really interesting to other people, but I think, you know, in Australia today, we're all interested in coloured stories and, um, you know, we've had enough of, we were saying before, Jane Austen and all the other stuff that we get taught in our curriculum. So, um, yeah, I think sharing those stories from other coloured people, definitely. 
And Rhonda, you have kind of teenage children. You do a lot of talks in high schools. Uh, what do you find is the most beneficial to empowering young people of colour and young women of colour? They're teachers. Mm. You need teachers with that insurgent spirit who are willing to push beyond the curriculum and open those opportunities for young people because the curriculum doesn't really do that as much as it should. Mm. Yeah. So no one's asked me, but probably a selfless... Uh, selfish self-plug is uh, definitely hop online at sweatshop.ws. We have a lot of workshop initiatives. We have a lot of publications that we bring out every year of anthologies that are solely written, produced, edited and designed by people of colour. One of them is called Sweatshop Women, which is entirely made by women of colour, which you can buy out in the foyer right after this. <laughs> I'm sure you will. That should be on <laughs> Um, And, yeah, I think the power of representation and young people of colour seeing themselves represented um, is definitely a must to to empower those young people. And um, maybe a bit controversial to say, but obviously if you're in a position of power as a well-meaning white teacher, white person who wants to do well, sometimes you have to look at yourself and step back a little bit and kind of let the young people of colour guide you as to actually what they might need. And sometimes the answer isn't you. That's okay. Mm. (laughs) Um, So the last question I wanted to end off, because it is a mentorship and I'm sure we'll keep in contact. I mean, I definitely want to. But um, what did you learn from this initiative and what what is what is your takeaway from this mentorship? Because I know Aisha, you were talking about the importance um, of of mentoring. Mm. Um, what is your biggest takeaway from this whole process and event? I think I can't think of another phrase because I love cats, but there are like so many ways to skin a cat. <laughs> many ways to skin a cat, um, and I think sometimes you know it's so nice to have people around you guiding you when your mind might, you know, you have all these ideas and it's so nice to be able to have assistance when you either got too many ideas or not enough. And, um, yeah, I think definitely mentor mentorships is something that I will come back to because it's just nice to have that kind of feel like you're being held, you know, and guided through. So, yeah. Beautiful. What about you, Yena? Yeah, I agree. I think, like, just having some encouragement was really, yeah, it was really important and... I think mentorships give you that in a way um, that just sending a poem into a journal Mm. you don't get. So, yeah, I think um, it's important that we all get encouragement in our careers, no matter where where we're at, I guess. Yeah. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Can we give Yena and Aisha a round of applause? Watch this talk and others at All About Women 2022 on stream. The new streaming service from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching. Follow the Sydney Opera House on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook.